Welcome to the Reach Your Summit podcast, where we help you navigate the path to a better, more secure future. I'm your host today, Stephanie Brinkman, and I'm the Marketing Administrator at Summit Wealth Group. Today, Dan Gilbertson, CFP and Vice President based out of our Lakewood, Colorado location, will be joining me to discuss four types of estate planning documents that we all need, plus one that you may need. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. It's great to be here, Stephanie. How's your day going so far? Nuts. No. <laughs> it's going well. Yeah, thank you. Oh, good. So the problem is most people don't understand the importance of estate planning until it's too late. Dan, let's start with the basics. What is estate planning? Thanks, Stephanie. The way I would start out, I'd say estate planning is just making a plan in advance and naming people or organizations you want to receive the things that you that you own after you die. Okay. What types of documents should people have for this? So Stephanie, at a minimum, everyone should have four documents. The first one is a simple will, or it's called a will. The second thing is, is a durable power of attorney for finance. Third thing is, is a health care or a medical power of attorney. That's for making medical decisions on somebody else's behalf. And then the last thing is a medical directive or a living will. And I'll get into each one of these in detail. Everyone should have their own separate will. Now, this provides instructions on how they'd like those assets to be dispersed once they pass away. So if you die without a will, it's considered dying intestate. I know that's a technical term, but you'll hear about it. Dan, can you please explain what this means? If you die intestate, disbursements from your estate will be made according to state law, which may not may or may not be according to what you want. Interesting. Does each state have their own law when it comes to this? They do, but uh, it'll still go through the state according to that state law. And this is very important. If you have minor kids, you need to designate a guardian in your will. And that's an addition to the will, but it's very important. If you have minor kids, you need to establish a guardian. Now, this is someone who would raise and take care of your minor kids in the event of a premature death of the parents. And many times, parents of minor kids, they have someone in mind who, who they'd like to have raise their kids, but unless you have a guardian that's appointed in that will, courts will determine who will become a guardian. And this is typically according to the bloodline. What I mean by the bloodline is that it starts out with moms and dads, brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, and so on. So if you want your sister to uh, be the guardian for the kids and have her raise the kids, bottom line is if you don't have that designated in a will, it could go through the bloodline and you might have some mothers and fathers and grandparents fighting against this. And, and that that's a real problem. So updating my will would be one of the first things I would do after I found out I was expecting a child. Worst case scenario, something happens to you and your significant other and you leave the fate of your child up to the state. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, it can be a real nightmare. And the bottom line with, with the will, you need to have an executor set up. So this is the person that selected and named to manage and settle your estate. That's key. You need to have somebody that's going to get the job done. You're going to trust that person, but they're going to stay on things and they're going to get that thing settled. Okay. So yeah, everyone definitely needs a will. When should you make updates to your will? You know, as I said earlier, if you move to another state, make sure that that will is updated according to that state law. That's critical. So a lot of times when people move to another state, they should look at that will, their estate documents, and get those things updated. Interesting. What is the second estate planning document you recommend that people have? So before we go on to the next document, which is a durable power of attorney, I want to talk about probate. So a lot of times, many people I've met with over the years think that if your assets go through your will, they're going to avoid probate. But that's completely incorrect. As a matter of fact, anything that goes through a will 
will go through probate. And a will basically is instructions to the probate court. So the cost of probate in Colorado is typically around 3 to 5% of the assets that pass through your will. But it's not the cost. What it really is, it's time consuming too. So it could take months or even years. And those assets can be tied up until the estate is settled. So it's more of a headache than anything rather than the cost. What are some ways that people can avoid probate? Okay, so the first way, and it's a really easy way, and a lot of these things, you can do this for free. It doesn't cost you anything to do these. So a payable on death, so this form allows you to put a beneficiary or beneficiaries on taxable accounts, such as joint, individual, and so on, at your bank or credit union. Can you be more specific? What types of accounts fall under that? So this would have to do with checking, savings, money market, CDs, accounts such as that. And then what I call POD's cousin, transfer on death, TOD, basically this form allows you to put beneficiaries on taxable accounts, joint, individuals, and so on, at your brokerage account or investment firm, mutual fund companies. But why would I need to add a beneficiary to my joint account? Wouldn't it go to my significant other? And it would, but I like to take it to the nth degree. So if I die and the account goes over to my joint owner, it goes over there with no probate, okay? But... Bottom line is, what happens if you both die? So if my wife and myself, if we're traveling, we have a joint account, and, and we get in a car accident, something happens to us, then that account's going to go through probate if I don't have a TOD on that account or a POD. So if you don't have a beneficiary, that's a big problem. So I try to take it to the extra measure. So when I was just talking about joint, a joint account, so joint tenants with rights of survivorship, the beauty of it is the property owned in this account automatically passes to the surviving owners uh, when one of the owners dies. So the following point I'm going to make, though, doesn't necessarily have to do with probate, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. I've seen clients or prospective clients come in and, and they've added their son or daughter to their house or bank account. Well, what they've just done is increase their liability. So if the son or daughter has a car accident and they get sued, they could lose their house or their bank account because when, when you add somebody to that account... There's a huge amount of liability that goes into that. So if the son gets sued, the parent's asset that they've added him to, they could lose those assets. Okay, so that's a huge issue. So if you're in a bank account, what I would do is I would add him as a signer. That's critical because there's no liability. But if something happens to you, they can still sign checks and and manage that account, pay the bills, things like that, which we'll talk more about when it comes to the, the powers of attorney. Wow, I did not know that being on someone's assets would open the door for them to possibly lose them if you were to get sued. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So a couple other areas that I want to just touch on, and I won't get into too much detail, is a revocable living trust. That's another way to avoid probate. Okay. The other thing is, is through beneficiaries. So if you designate minors as beneficiaries and you pass away, the proceeds will go through probate and the court's going to determine who that custodian's going to be. So that's not a good thing. And so there are a couple of different ways that we can avoid this. You can create a beneficiary language, which we have, that designates a custodian for the minor. The custodian is a person who would be responsible for those accounts on behalf of the minor until the minor turns age majority, and a lot of times that's age 21. So at that point, the accounts can be turned over to the beneficiaries. Now, like I said, we have suggested language that we can set that up as a beneficiary. And I said earlier, a living trust is another way that you you can manage things when kids are the minors. 
Then the final one is through a beneficiary. It's called a beneficiary deed for property. So in other words, if you have a home or a rental property, you can actually go to the register of deeds, fill out a beneficiary deed form, and you can add a beneficiary to those uh, um, real assets such as your home or, or rental. And then it avoids probate. But I want to make a special note here too. It's really important to keep in mind that the beneficiary should be set up and ready to go, and the beneficiaries should be a natural person, not your estate. What do you mean? If your beneficiary is set up to go to your estate, then it's guaranteed to go through probate. So I just, I, I know that was kind of a side note there, but I wanted to mention that before we got into the uh, durable power of attorney, but I think that's a very important distinction that when you go through the will, you're, that's instructions to the probate court, and you will pay the cost, and it'll take the time to go through probate. So those are ways to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all really important facts that you just brought up. Thank you. So the next thing I want to go through is a durable power of attorney. Now wills work when you're deceased powers of attorneys, they work while you're still alive. Okay. Once you pass away, the power of attorney doesn't exist anymore. Wills work when you're deceased. POAs work while you're alive. That's an easy way to remember the difference between the two. Dan, what is a DPOA in charge of? So a durable power of attorney allows a trusted person to make financial decisions on your behalf if you're incapacitated, physically unable, or mentally incompetent. That's the key. So it allows you to, to authorize somebody who you trust, of course, to act on your behalf so he and she can do the things like paying your bills, uh, making sure, sure things are taken care of financially so you don't get behind on things. And they'll watch over your investments, control your distributions, file your taxes, really important things like that. Can you give us an example, Dan? Let's take a husband or wife. So if the husband is incapacitated and the wife calls in and, and wants to get money out of the husband's IRA and they don't have a power of attorney on file, they have to get a court order. They can't do that. So for instance, if they call into our investment firm, Summit Wealth Group, basically the female, if she wants to get something out of her husband's IRA, we can't do that without a power of attorney. Okay. Even though they're married, and this is all based on the Privacy Act. Dan, what type of person would you recommend for this? Personally, I would choose a person who's financially responsible and potentially local. The number one thing is somebody who's financially responsible, somebody who's going to be uh, efficient with paying bills and getting things done. But think of it this way as far as somebody local. I like that idea because if you live in California and your POA, your power of attorney, is on the East Coast, it may not be the most convenient to have that person handle your finances. Uh, how many people should you have as a PDOA? So with a durable power of attorney, I recommend you have an, an odd number of representatives. And the reason for this is because just imagine this. If you have an even number of people and they disagree, uh, that's going to be a problem. There's really no tiebreaker. That's why I always suggest is maybe just having one or three. Three gets kind of muddy, but I would, I would stick with one just so there is a tiebreaker, somebody making that decision. Okay, Dan, this is all great information so far. What's the third document that you'd recommend people have? So the third document is, is like I said, it's a healthcare power of attorney or a medical power of attorney, similar to the durable power of attorney for financial issues. But with this one, this document allows you to appoint a representative or a trusted person to make medical decisions on your behalf if you're incapacitated or you can't express your wishes yourself. So you determine how much power that that person is going to have. So that's the key. Now, unfortunately, I had to make this decision 32 years ago. I lost my wife to cancer, and my wife was at the point when I consulted the doctors that we knew and we all agreed 
that there was no hope of her recovering. So it was a sad time, but so we had to make that decision to stop life support. Now, bottom line is this is a serious decision and you want to make sure that you have the right person making that decision. And in this case, it was me making that decision. My current wife's in my situation. We have our son who's a nurse designated to make that decision. We just figured for a healthcare part of attorney, somebody in, in the medical field would really make sense. So um, bottom line is, is my wife and I have each other designated first, but our son is the alternate. So that's going to work out. Do you recommend having a tiebreaker for this as well? Absolutely. I feel a tiebreaker in this case is even more important than a durable power of attorney. And the reason for that is because just think about it. You're going through an extremely emotional time. And the last thing your family needs is a disagreement about your loved one's care or welfare. You don't want to be battling. You want to, you want to take good care of your loved one and you want that person making a decision. He or she might confide in the family, but the bottom line, the decision is made from the healthcare power of attorney. Okay. So we're already under the fourth document, Dan. Um, what is that? The fourth thing that I was talking about earlier, and, and it, there can be more documents than this, but this is the fourth of the absolute necessary documents. It's called a living will or a medical directive. So this document allows you to make end of life decisions ahead of time in the event of a terminal illness or injury. So in other words, you can decline medical treatment that serves only to postpone the moment of death. Bottom line, for an example, would be life support, intravenous feedings, do not resuscitate order. You've heard of a DNR. That's what that's all about. Things like that. So in other words, anytime you go into a surgery, the medical staff is going to ask you if you have a medical directive or a living will. And that's the reason why, to make those decisions based on what your wishes are rather than somebody else making them for you. Uh, what estate planning documents might some people need? This is a biggie. So a revocable living trust holds and owns property such as your home, any land, taxable investments, things like that. Um, in that trust. And funding the trust is critical. Dan, can you explain what this means? So many times I, I've seen these beautifully written trusts, but the people don't fund the trust. You have to retitle the assets into the trust. Um, so in other words, you have this nice trust, but there's nothing in it. It's just a shell. Once you fund the trust and you change title of those assets, then it's under that shell of the trust. Can you give us an example, Dan? If my wife and I have a home titled in our names jointly, we would have that title changed to reflect the trust owns it, so the Gilbertson Living Trust. Now, you still have full control of the assets, but it's retitled into the trust. Now, the primary function of a trust, a living trust, is to avoid probate, avoid estate taxes, depending on the size of your estate. When can this document be changed? Now, this document can be changed or amended Anytime you want, it's a living document, okay? Now, there would be some expense with the amendment and things like that, but it can be more expensive and it can be as simple or complex as you wish. So in other words, I tell people, I advise people, whatever you want in that living trust, tell them, tell the attorney or if you're doing it yourself, think about what you want to accomplish. And then it's a matter of somebody getting it into the legal form. Another benefit of having a living trust, you want to avoid this thing called ancillary probate. What is that? I have a client who, who has some land in Minnesota, primary house in, in Colorado, and their second home in Arizona, okay? If these assets go through the will and not a living trust or any type of revocable trust or irrevocable trust, they would go through probate one at a time. For instance, if their primary home was in uh, Colorado, that would go through probate. Once that's totally completed, then it would go to Minnesota. When that's completed, then it would go to Arizona. 
So you can imagine the time it would take to get through all those things and the expenses. If you have a living trust, it all happens simultaneously, happens all at once. Could this protect you in the case of a divorce? Yeah, so it, it doesn't necessarily protect you while you're still married, but let's just give an example. So let's just say my wife and I, we have, we have a living trust, and we pass away, and our three kids, they inherit the living trust. It goes three ways, and let's just say that one of the kids got a divorce. If it's held in trust, if it remains in trust, and they get a divorce, those assets will stay in that trust and the spouse isn't going to get 50% of it. So that's really a key protected device with the living trust. Wow. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. These situations vary, but uh, overall, that that's a great strategy in my opinion. Another thing you can do is, is, it's kind of a strange way of saying it, but you can control the distributions from the grave. So my wife and I have a living trust, and we've set this up so that our kids and grandkids won't get their inheritances all at once. We've determined how often and at what ages they're they're going to receive this, these uh, distributions or disbursements. So protecting the beneficiaries from themselves. That's what I tell people all the time. So you might have some kids or grandkids that are not great with, with managing money, but you want to protect them from themselves. So if you stretch that out over time, this is really going to help them because they're not going to get everything in a lump sum, not getting everything all at once. Okay. So you can also put a living trust that basically with their inheritance, it has this provision and it's called HEMS, Health, Education, Maintenance and Support. The trustee will determine if the distribution requests apply to the HEMS provision. And it's a nice thing because if they get into a rough patch, they can, you know, the trustee can issue out these funds and help the beneficiaries, but it still protects them from themselves. That's a great suggestion. Awesome, Dan. We went over a lot of important information today. Um, talked about the four documents that everyone should have, and then a couple that some people might need. Are there any other estate planning documents that are important to consider? Yeah, there are really a lot of different documents, but I'll just run through a, a few of them here. I, I mentioned earlier irrevocable trusts, irrevocable life insurance trusts, charitable trusts, Medicaid asset protection trusts, family trusts, many varieties of different trusts. But keep in mind, your estate documents will be created specific to you and your specific situation as well as your wishes. That's very important to remember. So once you get these documents in place, you're also going to have that peace of mind. You're going to be able to sleep at night. And a lot of people don't get around to it and get it done. But once you do, you'll find out that it really helps you sleep at night. And, and you can check that off your list too. So, and also remember, you can change or amend these at any time. So uh, while you're still alive, once you pass away, then you can't change them anymore. So that's, that's an important distinction too. Dan, do you have to work with an attorney to get all these different documents set up? Stephanie, that's a great question because a lot of times I hear uh, somebody is, is creating these estate documents and it's just a general attorney, whether it's a divorce attorney, general attorney, whatever it is, you can do it two different ways. You can do it on your, on your own. You can get a, get a package that you can go through this as long as you get it done. I tell people, if you're not going to get it done, get an attorney, not just any attorney. It should be an estate planning attorney. The key with that is they know the laws, they know the provisions, and you're going to tell them what you want done, what you want to accomplish, and they're going to get that put in legal form. Okay. Good to know. So after someone has gone through the work of completing these documents, uh, where do you recommend that they store the documents? That's another good question. So I would keep it in a safe. And nowadays you have electronic methods too that you can keep them on there. Just make sure they're protected. People can't access them. But another area, if you use an estate planning attorney, they're going to have those documents too. 
They're going to have those on file if you need another copy. And we, as an investment firm, we're helping our clients and we keep it on a secured vault too. So if they ever lose theirs or misplace them, we always have a copy for our clients here. That's nice that there are a couple of different copies. Say your house starts on fire, you lose that document. Um, your attorney or your financial advisor would have it as a backup. So after you've gone through all this, who should you share this information with? My opinion is that I'm a little conflicted here because it's important to share this with your family. And if you have any friends involved, that's really, a, I think, a very important step. I'm a little bit more on the side where I don't share the numbers. I don't share that personal information with my kids or grandkids. But it is important if they're going to be a power of attorney, an alternate on a power of attorney, if they're going to be healthcare power of attorney alternate, uh, if you're going to list somebody as a guardian, that's critical for them to understand. I can't tell you how many times when somebody's appointed a guardian in their estate planning, I ask them, well, do they know about this? And they haven't communicated that with them. They've had these conversations, but they haven't told them that they actually put that in their estate documents. So it's important you sit down and talk about all these different things. And you can get into the details, the numbers, things like that, your assets that you own. You can do that as much as you want. But me in particular, my wife and I, we're pretty private when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. So we've said multiple times on this podcast how important it is to be proactive rather than reactive. As you're going through the estate planning process, make sure that you have a conversation with the people about those different rules. It's just as important that they know what you're asking them to do so they're prepared to follow your wishes when the day comes. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about this, Dan. My wife knows this, and I think a lot of my clients know this. I'm very passionate when it comes to estate planning. Love talking about it. Love figuring out the best way for people to approach this. But I really enjoyed it today, Stephanie. I appreciate your time on this, too. Awesome. Dan will be on our next couple episodes, so stay tuned. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Reach Your Summit podcast brought to you by Summit Wealth Group. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or topics that you'd like us to cover, please email info at summitwealthgroup.com. Thanks again.